supersede uh, provincial law, but in this case, it's kind of the reverse. So the way the legislation was written uh, by the federal government was, uh, we're gonna set up our uh, standards or expectations, uh, but we're allowing the provinces to enact uh, stricter rules if they uh, so choose. So it's a little bit backwards, but uh, that's what they decided, and that's why you're gonna see uh, from province to province, uh, there's differences. So, first thing let's talk about is possession. So now that it's legal, uh, how much can I have? Specific to Manitoba. Now across Canada, 30 grams is your limit, but specific to uh, Manitoba, we chose the age of 19 or older uh, to possess legal cannabis. Uh, and that you can only possess 30 grams worth of dried cannabis. Now if you want to have a, an appreciation of how much is 30 grams, which is about the, uh, one ounce, uh, this is gives you an idea of what 30 grams of dried cannabis looks like. Now I throw this on, it's a little bit confusing to watch, but uh, it's because they like to complicate things. <laughs> so we're talking about dried cannabis, but you have to appreciate that there's other products out there. So right now in Manitoba, we're not selling any edibles per se, but that's coming. Uh, and there's different things that you can do to existing legal cannabis uh, to make your own edibles uh, or to transform it into uh, some of these different versions. So um, keeping that in mind, they've created an equivalency chart so that uh, if, you're, if you have a non-solid uh, containing cannabis, so that would be something like a, uh, an e-cigarette with the, your e-substance has a cannabis contained in there, um, well, they have an equivalent of how to measure what uh, 30 grams uh, equivalent to the non-solid or the e-vaping substance would be. Now, you can imagine uh, for the street cop like me, this becomes very complicated to do roadside where you got to pull out a, a calculator. So, uh, they haven't made this easy for us at all. For the most part, we are seeing, uh, you know, dried cannabis. That's, uh, for the most part, what we see. Um, now, I do want to point out, it is still uh, illegal, uh, or it's still an offense, and a crime to, to possess or, or distribute illicit cannabis. That is still uh, illegal. Now, you may uh, have question running in the back of your mind is how do we determine what's illicit and what isn't? Well, there, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is the unfortunate reality is they, we don't have uh, any, uh, there's nothing in place to, to determine what's illicit and what isn't. Um, so they made it complicated for us to to enforce some of these laws. Um, for example, you can buy your legal weed out of the, you know, you got your little packaging, but there's nothing that prevents you from 
deciding to to change your package and put it in your favorite pop jar and carry that around with you. Um, you can do whatever you want. And there's nothing that uh, the, the onus would be on the police to prove that the, the cannabis you do have is illicit. And uh, that will obviously pose to be very difficult. So there's some, obviously there's some concerns on the law enforcement side on some of the, the, you know, the, the issues that we have no control over, but it makes it very difficult for us to, to enforce some of these laws. Now again, to, to reiterate, the, the, one of the goals was to, to protect youth uh, in all of this. Uh, so provincially, it is an offense for a young person, so someone under the age of 19 in Manitoba, to possess any amount of cannabis, which is a little bit different than what the federal uh, law says. Uh, although the federal law says youth should not have it, they have a little stipulation that as long as it's less than five grams on their person. Well, to me, that's not keeping it out of a young person's hands. So Manitoba says, no, we're, we're going zero tolerance for this. Uh, so if a young person is found with uh, cannabis on their person, we have a $672 fine. Hopefully uh, that in it of itself will be a deterrent for you know the 16-year-old that has uh, uh, marijuana in his pocket. Uh, we'll see if that ultimately uh, has the, the deterrent effect that it's meant to have. Is that any amount? Yes. Um, so they could have a rope, uh, they could have you know, one joint or whatever. If they have any amount, this is a fine. Now if they have a whole bunch, we're looking at that just a little differently, right? So now is he distributing it? Because if he's more than 30 grams, all of a sudden we're into a different effect. Now if you supply or sell cannabis to a young person, well, be careful because the fine is significantly uh, uh, higher. So you're over $2,500 for that fine. Uh, so that's selling or, or supplying in one shape or another cannabis to a young person. So hopefully that is a true term. So no jail time or other consequences? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. It depends on the amount. Um, but this is the answer to the, uh, the provincial kind of easy way out. Uh, here's your ticket. Um, especially if we're talking about the small amounts. Gotcha. Under this scheme, this is under the uh, the, the Act. Um, have to double check which Act we're talking about, but it has to do with the selling and distribution of, of cannabis Act. So this is the kind of the provincial easy way to to deal with these offenses. Now. Talking uh, quickly on cultivation, so the Cannabis Act, no laws, and say you can grow four plants in your residence. 
Manitoba said no, we don't want that. So uh, Manitoba regulations say uh, no cultivation at all. So as a result, if you're found to have uh, one to four plants in your house, that will be a fine of $2,542. It has to do with the court cost and there's the fine and then there's the court cost and then there's the, yeah. These are all the, uh, yeah, the fine cable that we use. But that wouldn't apply to federal jurisdiction plans like First Nations, right? Yeah, so there's, there's a whole different, uh, there's a whole different speech or, or talk to this and to deal with uh, the different rules for the First Nations uh, lands and all that. Uh, you're right. That's like a whole different discussion. And I only have 45 minutes, so. <laughs> but you're right. So for the most, uh, most of the rules, this is what uh, is in place for Manitoba. Now, five to six plants. Now you're looking at a federal offense. And uh, specifically, the federal government said they'd be creating a federal ticketing system. So it's basically fines for uh, breaking the rules. However, that federal ticketing system doesn't exist yet. So do we miss? So as a result, um, if we come across someone that has five to six plants, then we're looking at it uh, as a federal offense, and that will bring you a, a court date, which ultimately will end up in a, a fine of some sort. Um, keeping in mind that everything is, is so new to this, that uh, we're only a month into this, right? So um, charges and, and uh, actual uh, court cases haven't occurred yet. So what the ultimate penalties will be, are yet to be determined. Now, as soon as you go seven or, or more, uh, then that's a federal crime. So now they're looking at you to, uh, as a criminal where you're growing, uh, not for the purpose of uh, personal use, and now it's, again, a crime. So, public consumption. We put a whole bunch of uh, regulations in regards to now that it's legal, now that I can smoke it. The next question is, well, where? Where can I do this? So the regulation, uh, and it's specifically the Non-Smoker Health Protection and Vapor Products Act. So it says that no person shall smoke cannabis or use an e-cigarette uh, e uh, in an outdoor public place. Next question in your mind, well, what's the definition of a public place? <laughs> well, let me show you. So it goes uh, into very, you know, quite a few specifics here, but uh, sidewalk, street, highway, uh, playgrounds, parks, uh, patios, decks. If you're trying to figure out where I can smoke, well, yeah, it, it's limited to ultimately uh, at your residence is probably the only easy answer to that. 
And that's not even an easy answer depending on you know, where you live. But if you have a house, you can smoke all you want in your house. You gotta remember, if you're consuming an impairing substance, you want to compare it like that, there's an offense there. And you'll soon find out that there's a specific offense under the Hydrotropic Act that stipulates smoking, ingesting uh, cannabis in a car. It's its own offense. Now, keeping in mind, these are non-criminal offenses, but smoking while driving uh, that should prompt a, an impaired driving investigation, right? And are we seeing signs of impairment? And if so, then that's a different, that's a crime in and of itself. I would hope so, yes. But not all vapes have. No, exactly. <laughs> Just because you're vaping doesn't mean you're, 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 you're ingesting, in this case, could be nicotine with soy glycerin. Absolutely, it could be whatever flavor <laughs> And the tricky thing with e-vaping is that while well, you're not going to have that uh, obvious marijuana smell either. So things get really tricky uh, to detect. But if we're looking into impaired driving enforcement, we're going to focus on what are the signs of impairment. Am I seeing signs of impairment? That's what we're looking for. Not so much uh, <coughs> just because you're vaping, or you're, you must be hot and smoking something. Uh, that's not a, a, a good link to make. As a matter of fact, a colleague of mine, he did the uh, tobacco vaping, and, uh, and I s happened to see on social media a picture taken of him as he was driving, and the person immediately thought that he was smoking crack, and oh my god. How I came across the picture is beyond me, but I went, this is, this is my buddy here. <laughs> Clearly he wasn't smoking crack or anything else, uh, but it's the appearance, I guess. So these are provincial regulations? These are provincial regulations, yeah. Um, two quick questions on the assumption. So in terms of, like, from what I've read from the regulations, it is basically just kind of your private residence. But what if, you know, we talk about Christmas parties and Fairmont would uh, be a public place. So no. Okay. And my second question is, uh, in terms of outdoor entertainment venues, what we've seen across Canada is uh, discussions on having, if it's 19 or 18 plus entertainment, like say Folk Fest, for example, and then you have a segregated yeah. section for consumption. Is that also illegal in Manitoba, or is that something that's to be determined? Well. You're going by the definition, they, you're not going to be allowed to smoke in the park. But it's open, right? So, uh, <laughs> it was kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, Sometimes what's you know, illegal on paper won't necessarily be enforced because of the, the overwhelming uh, issues. And to, to try to address that, like, that's a can of worms that. Technically, it's uh, illegal. Just like uh, you know, tailgating parties at IGF Stadium, you're not supposed to. 
but we if it's under control. Strictly to, to 
actual parking of your vehicles. That doesn't make it now your, uh, it's going to be parked for the purposes of uh, Concern. It is 
the number one criminal cause of death in Canada. As a matter of fact, in Manitoba last year, a third of fatal collisions uh, impairment was an issue. Uh, even more specific to that, when they tested uh, fatal drivers, they're now finding that finding drugs more often than actual alcohol. So that's obviously a concern, uh, I think, for everyone. As a matter of fact, I took part in this survey and helping it uh, occur. Uh, two years ago, Manitoba Public Insurance uh, did a, a roadside survey. Ultimately, the results found that 10% uh, of drivers were showing the presence of a drug in their system, and they were driving. Uh, specifically, half of that was marijuana, or cannabis, THC specifically, uh, but also cocaine and opiates, uh, some benzodiazepines and amphetamines on the lower end. But, uh, this is what we're finding on the streets of Manitoba. We don't have to look very far to, to find a drug-impaired driver. Now, this is not new to police. And, like Drug impaired driving has been a offense since 1925. Uh, and we've been dealing with the drug impaired driver uh, ever since uh, the laws were there. What's happened though is that our ability to detect and ultimately uh, enforce these laws have improved as our training has uh, evolved as well as the equipment available to us. Uh, some of the changes that came into place uh, as early as last June uh, involved the creation of some new offenses that deal specifically with blood drug concentrations. Uh, everything geared towards uh, the, the legalization of cannabis, of course. Uh, so they have specific concentrations that deal with THC. But there's also a list of 10 drugs or nine other drugs that have a per se limit, or it's an offense that simply happens in your body while you're driving. And they also introduced the ability to use uh, improved drug screening equipment to help uh, detect drug impaired drivers. And then they gave us uh, some specific powers in regards to uh, being able to demand blood when we have reasonable grounds. So quickly, if we suspect a person is impaired, there's a few options. We can uh, conduct field sobriety tests. If we, if we believe alcohol is the impairing substance, we'll uh, potentially use a roadside breath test. Uh, and now the latest gadget is an oral fluid uh, drug testing equipment. So you do that roadside? We can do that roadside. Uh, it has its limitations. It tests for THC and cocaine only. So. Uh, and then ultimately, if, if we, uh, upon arrest, if we, uh, depending on the scenario, we may do a, official evidentiary breath samples, or if drugs are the suspected impairing uh, cause, we can uh, demand samples of their blood and or conduct a drug influence evaluation. Now, a drug influence evaluation is conducted by a uh, highly trained officer. Consists of 12 steps, uh, a 12 step process, which focuses on uh, physical coordination tests as well as clinical indicators, 
and ultimately that officer will make a determination of uh, not only impairment but uh, what drug category is likely causing that impairment. Step that needs to occur before we start to do tests or even in 
investigate U.S. potential impaired driving. Does that make sense? If 30 days later you're still high as a kite, <laughs> then you're consuming a lot of uh, high potency drugs or whatever. Uh, the thing is, 30 days later you're not going to be reason 
or a spike in impaired driving or whatever. And unfortunately, that answer is not as easy as you may think. And because of all kinds of different reasons, uh, what we often see, problem number one is that people who smoke cannabis often like to mix alcohol. So now we're dealing with an impaired driver and he's drank enough alcohol. Uh, we're gonna deal with the alcohol impaired driving aspect of it because uh, it's easy, it's a breath sample, and we would go. If they blow over the limit, we're not even gonna look at the cannabis impairment. So right there, there's a stat that doesn't get recorded properly. And then there's the other aspects of um, just the way that we track the information. We refer to impaired drivers as either alcohol-impaired drivers or drug-impaired drivers. So we don't have that distinction of, of is it a cannabis-impaired driver? Further to that is, well, if we wanted to do that, how would we do it? Well, we would have to look at a, uh, you know, a blood sample from that person or a urine sample of some sort. That needs to go for analysis. I can tell you the RCP lab and gets a result about six months from now. So there's a whole bunch of good questions that are one month in that there's no way I can give you any indication because it's so early into uh, you know, post-legalization that uh, ask me again in a year, we may have some numbers, but ultimately this will have to be uh, researched over uh, you know, several years to get a, you know, a really a, a better indication as to how did the legalization of cannabis you know, affect us? Uh, you know, did we end up with a whole bunch more impaired drivers? I can tell you briefly, uh, so in Denver, Colorado, it's been legal for six years now. They didn't necessarily see a huge spike in fatal crashes as a result of cannabis, and there's all kinds of reasons, as I mentioned, about how to collect that data. But what they did uh, notice is that the presence of cannabis in all kinds of different crashes was uh, highly increased. So can we specifically blame cannabis for all of those numbers? That becomes difficult to do. But what they certainly did see is that the presence of cannabis uh, had skyrocketed in, in all these different scenarios. So, uh, it's, if you know anything about stats, it becomes very difficult to, to, to control your, your samples. And, and, uh, you can make all kinds of uh, statements based on how you manipulate your stats, right? I think that's the world we live in. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it's too early to tell that what impact it's had thus far. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. And I think we got like a super smart group here today because these questions were great and totally riveting and very important for us all to know. Uh, we do have a little gift we'd like to present to you too for your time today. And I'm sure we'll be around if you have any more questions or apologies, but we do have uh, another session starting shortly. Uh, if you are looking for cannabis legalization and regulation, that is in York 1. 
Uh, shaping Social Norms for Road Safety in the Cannabis Culture is York 2. Uh, linking Cannabis and Mental Health, that's in this room here, York 3. And Cannabis in the Workplace Scenarios and Solutions is in York 4, which is just next door here. So thank you again for coming.